Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but I am joined by Kaveh Akbar. He is a poet and author of two poetry collections, Pilgrim Bell and Calling a Wolf a Wolf. And he is the author of a brand new novel titled Martyr. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. My luck. We are in the basement of a bookstore in Seattle. Uh, You just came in from San Francisco. Uh, I want to, before we actually talk about some major themes that are in this book, I want to give people like a sense of your background. So from what I've read, you were born in Iran, but you moved here when you were about two years old. Yeah, two and a half. Two and a half. And then you've been living kind of all over the United States. So we talk a lot on this show about being born in in one place and moving to another place. And you moved so young. What was your understanding of sort of your heritage when you were growing up as a kid in the United States? Did your parents sort of emphasize the time in Iran very much? What was your experience? It was actually quite the opposite. My brother is seven years older than me. So when we came to America, he was really struggling in school. They didn't have English language learning pedagogy then or there anyways, the way that we do now in most schools, um, most decent schools. And so because he was struggling so much, my parents in a kind of misguided attempt at accelerating his English language acquisition banned speaking Persian in the household, which caused our Persian to atrophy really quickly from disuse, which is kind of a remarkable thing that happens with language. You don't think of it as being something that you can go out of practice from so quickly. So it's a strange thing where in a room full of Persians, I always feel like Iranians, you know, I always feel like I'm the least Iranian person. And in a room full of Americans, I always feel like the least American person, certainly, which is powerful kind of as an artist to have that ability to stand back a little bit and see, you know, your nose isn't so pressed up to the mural, right? Like you can see the whole picture a little bit more, but it can also create some existential questions (laughs) of like, who am I? What am I? What am I doing here? Yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot about that with displacement. Anytime you kind of put your place somewhere else for a while, you kind of become adrift. But I mean, it's different to feel adrift when you've essentially lived in the same place your whole life. Yeah, yeah. I. It took me a long time to figure out who I was or what I wanted or who I wanted to be around, right? Um, because it didn't seem to have any of the easy answers racially, ethnically, Um, My mom's white, my dad's Iranian. And so, yeah, I don't know. I've just always felt like in the middle of checkboxes, right? But I I glommed on to being a writer quite quickly. You know, that's that's something that I'm certain that I am, you know, as I had this sort of shock of clarity in high school. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm a writer. You know, like I, I, I had a seminal high school English teacher who sent me home with a stack of poetry books, including Yusuf Komanyaka's Neon Vernacular. And um, it just it just blew my mind. And I was like, this is the thing that I am now. I love that self-definition. So you found your way. Yeah. Your character in this book talks a lot about what it is like to be a citizen of a nation that can be sort of hostile to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Iran is back in the news all the time right now, at least here in the United States. I don't know for our Italian listeners if they're reading about Iran all the time right now, but we could talk about that in your character's experience or even how it is in your own to have that as a part of it. Yeah, well, 
so a lot of the book orbits a character named Cyrus Shams, who is has some biographical symmetries with me. He was born in Iran. He was raised here in America. He's a writer. He's in recovery. These are all parts of my identity as well. So there are these sort of explicit symmetries. Um, there are also important differences. But every character in the book, not just Cyrus, every character in the book is indelibly inflected by empire, right? The, the project of empire. There's an event that happens at the start of the book that also happened in real life, the 1988 downing of Iran Air Flight 655 by the USS Vincennes, which was a U.S. naval warship. Um, Iran Air Flight 655 was a civilian passenger plane, like the one that I took to get here today from San Francisco. And the USS Vincennes say that they mistook it for a military plane and shot it down, killing all 290 people on board, including 66 children. Um, the, the mention of this event might inspire in the memory of some of your elder listeners a flicker of recollection. They might say, oh, yeah, I kind of remember that, you know, but those 290 people are just gone. Right. The people that they may have brought into the world are gone. Right. Um, it, it was not just like a flickering one of many sort of indistinguishable acts of empirical violence to the families of those 290 people. Right. And that's one of the things that I'm really interested in, in art is this capacity to create a sense of in the granularity of individual loss being laid over the abstraction of collective grief. Um, the, the sense that this one, you know, a lot of the book orbits out Cyrus's mother was on that plane. And so a lot of the book is inflected by her absence, right? Cyrus is orphaned. His dad dies after coming to America and working on industrial chicken farms. And so everything that happens in Cyrus's life, every lover that Cyrus takes, every, you know, uh, conversation that he has is inflected by this act of empirical violence, right? This act of terror, right? Um, after it happens, then Vice President George H.W. Bush says, I don't care what the facts are. I'm not an apologize for America sort of guy, right? Which is just so chilling. Yeah. And so I say this to say, right, there's nothing that isn't touched by this, right? There's no character that isn't touched by this project, this, this shadow. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about martyrdom. Because the the book, of course, is called Martyr with an exclamation point, which did you did you argue for the exclamation point? Because it is kind of brilliant. I do like the exclamation point. I mean, I, I it, when I sent the manuscript to Knopf, it had the exclamation point, And actually, nobody nobody bothered me about it. They, <laughs> they, I think they understood it. My editor, Jordan Pavlin, I think really understood what I was up to. Yeah. Why did you put it there? Well, <laughs> excellent follow up. Um, <laughs> uh so the, the central character in the book, Cyrus Shams, is adrift. He's suicidally sad. He's ready to kill himself. But if he wants to kill himself, he doesn't want to do so in a meaningless way. He wants to create meaning, right? He's also an addict. And so addicts are people who, if there is a button to press to, that will allow you to feel good, they're going to press it till it breaks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we, I can, I'm saying they, but what I mean is we, right? I can speak in the first person plural. Um, or I. Um, And so here is a button that says my life has no meaning. But if I press this button, suddenly by giving my death meaning, it will retroactively tinge my life with purpose. You see what I'm saying? That is what a martyr does, right? The martyr's death 
lays over their entire life and gives the life purpose, right? The appeal of just that instantaneously press the button and receive purpose, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Is appealing to Cyrus, right? Versus the just sort of ongoingness of living, just the, the rolling ellipses of being alive versus the staccato press the button and receive purpose of martyrdom, right? And so it's like martyr. Also, I think just tonally, if the book had been called Martyr, that without the exclamation point, it would have felt very dour and very sort of serious and self-important. And I mean, the book is about, the book orbits serious subjects, but I don't think that it's a relentlessly dour book. I mean, I I hope that it feels quite funny and silly and playful um, throughout as well. Well, I mean, it is also a, like a big exploration of art and like how you live your life, especially in the gray zones, which I want to get to. But it is like that that larger exploration of um, how does a person die a meaning meaningful death? You know, I mean, he often uh, equates his mother's death as meaningless because it was just random chaos, I guess, in some ways. And uh, even d- despite what Bush wants to say about it and uh and for him, that feels like, well, what, you know, what is the purpose of that? I mean, is there a reason why you yourself wanted to explore, like, what actually makes a meaningful death? Well, I mean, I, you know, I can't write it unless I'm not creative enough. I'm not imaginative enough to just create things whole cloth um, in terms of the psycho-spiritual bedrock upon which I'm building things, right? I mean, that kind of existential, I'm sober, now what? ishness that is everywhere apparent in the book is very much part of my own consciousness you know um something that cyrus talks a lot about in the book is in his narcotic experience he could just summon utter ecstasy right he could just put something into his body and just be utterly utterly rapturously deliriously glad right um and then when he wasn't doing that he was pulverizingly sad right he was just like immobilizingly like ravished by grief you know and then he gets sober And instead of everything being from 11 to negative 11, everything's kind of just from three to negative three, you know? And he's just like, well, this kind of sucks, you know? And I don't know if this is all it's going to be. What's, what's the point, right? Um, If, if I've already felt 11 maxing out at three, doesn't feel like a very good life. Right. And that's something that I've had to think a lot about and thinking about the difference between pleasure and joy is an ongoing process for me. I'm, I've been sober for 10 and a half years, but this is still something that I think a lot about. Yeah, but I mean, is it equated also to like what makes a meaningful death? Because in some ways, as an addict, you're constantly on the edge. I mean, at least when we think about like, say the fentanyl crisis here in the United States, you're always on the edge of maybe this is the end. You might not think of it that way, but yeah. in that, in some ways, I don't know, would that be considered a meaningless death? Like what all the people that died on the city streets of Seattle this year? Well, I think that, are you asking me or are you asking Cyrus? I mean, (laughs) whoever you want to answer for, I suppose. Well, I mean, I think that what Cyrus is calling meaningless is meaningless at the level of empire. It's illegible to empire. In other words, when Iran Air Flight 655 went down, had there been 289 people on board or 291, it wouldn't have made a difference to, you know, the overall atrocity, right? To the overall tragedy. But that one life is his mom that one life is the precipitant for his romance with z his you know obsession with poetry you know what i mean like like that one life is utterly meaningful on the human level but at the level of empire it's meaningless right in the same way 
his father dying after being an anonymous laborer on a chicken farm for decades meaningless at the level of empire empire doesn't care right mm -hmm. uh, so we live under a kind of necrocapitalism that wants to an extractive necrocapitalism that wants to suck everything out of the earth and suck everything out of us and then once it's dry it doesn't need us anymore right um and so that that death is utterly illegible to empire cyrus wants to come up with a definition of the word martyr that can accommodate people like his mother that can accommodate people like his father okay let me mix the two ideas together about what we were talking about about the realities of being an american iranian and in a country that's also sometimes hostile to people from the middle east i mean one of the things and this is a paraphrase i did not write everything you wrote down but one of the things cyrus says in the book is when he's thinking about the concept of being a martyr is that if he were to kill a genocidal dictator tomorrow the news wouldn't say that a leftist American made a principled sacrifice for the good of the species, but that an Irani Iranian terrorist attempted a state assassination. Can you extrapolate on that at all? I mean, it's true, right? Like your subject position makes certain outcomes more or less available, available to you. Nicholson Baker has a book that I really, really love a lot called Checkpoint, where he published it in 2004. And um, it's all about, it all orbits this character who is basically contemplating the ethics of assassinating George W. Bush, right? Who at the time had sort of manufactured this reason to invade Iraq. You know, he said they had weapons of mass destruction, which we now know he was lying about. And everyone in his circle knew he was lying about, but, and consequentially killed hundreds of thousands of, led to the loss of life. And, you know, Iraq is still destabilized and has no infrastructure and we see what happens in Af Afghanistan and the Taliban you know I mean we, there are all these deleterious effects all these years later right and so there's this book by Nicholson Baker that just is basically like a book a novel length trolley problem right like if if I kill myself and this guy surely that net bad outweigh is outweighed by the lives that it would go on to save right mm -hmm. and i remember reading that in high school as like a iranian kid after 9-11 and just being like holy sh like i cannot believe that he was able to write this and you know he didn't get arrested or thrown into a gulag or something you know but nicholson baker who i love he's one of my favorite living writers is also like an old quaker white guy you know um in his 70s right and so there's a difference between him writing that book and me writing that book, which is another reason why I wanted to call my book Martyr with an exclamation point to just get out in front of that fear, you know, instead of sort of spending the entire life of this book kind of euphemizing and dancing around the fact that I'm contemplating these questions to just be like, go ahead and sell it in your Hudson News and it's going to have the word martyr with my very ethnic sounding name underneath it, you know, um, and I'm just going to shout, you know, you know, that was also kind of the... I mean, it's it's a provocation meant to inoculate myself against feeling bashful about that, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, if I, I, I even <laughs> even like talking with you now, it, like I mean, I'm you can hear me kind of hemming and hawing about what I want to say or how I want to say it because it's scary. But like, if you are going to, if you are willing, if you are suicidally sad and you want to make your death useful you know, setting yourself in, on fire in front of a Bank of America might make a lot of sense, right, to make a statement, right? Um, but that is inflected by your subject position. Kidnapping a conservative Supreme Court justice might make a lot of sense. But again, if, if I do that, it's a lot different from if Nicholson Baker does that. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. 
and so that's one of the things that Cyrus thinks about in the book. That's one of the, that these are some of the questions that he's asking. And even just, you can hear it in my voice right now, talking to you. It, it's, it still feels a little bit scary for me to say that I came up in a 9-11 America, a post 9-11 America. Right. And there are certain things that I'm really afraid to say still, and I'm trying to get braver. And I mean, I wrote a book called Martyr. I mean, hopefully, you know, I'm getting better and I'm getting a little bit braver, but in any day, you know, I, I could be, I'm sure I'm already on a number of lists. Well, well let's change total direction. Okay. okay. So in last week's episode of the show, we actually discussed the limitations of language. Great. And one, one, it was inspired by your book. Oh, really? Actually, because oh, I was reading it while we were sure. recording it. And um, you say a couple things about language throughout the book. I wrote a couple of them down. Um, at one point you write, I have heard people say smell is the sense most attached to memory, but for me, it is always language. And in another place, and this is the one we actually read on the show last week, uh, you wrote, a photograph can say, this is what it was. Language can only say, this is what it was like. Two totally different ideas when it comes to language. Um, but I, I would love, especially because you come to writing a fiction book through poetry, I would love to hear some of your thoughts about the limitations of language and, and how you think about it and deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I am a language artist. I came up as a poet. I mean, when I was a kid, my brother loved Legos and I loved Mad Libs and reading. Like I, I, the exact same way that my brother loved Legos. Like I love to come up with weird bespoke ways to say a normal thing. And my brother would be like, what are you talking about? And my dad would be like, what are you talking about? And my mom loved it. Like she would play it with me. Just coming up with the weirdest possible way to say a very normal thing, mm -hmm. um, which feels and felt even at the time, which is kind of remarkable that I had this sort of dawning, burgeoning awareness of the materiality of language. It felt really interesting. It felt and, and feels very analogous to my brother playing with Legos, right? It's just like, there are these pieces and you can stick them together in all sorts of different ways. And that's just a fun way to play. Michelangelo looks out his window in Rome where you live and sees the marble quarries. And so he carves the David. Um, I look out my window and I just see a m massive onslaught of meaningless language being shot at us from a fire hose at every, you know, and so that is the medium of my art, right? Like that is, I'm not saying I'm Michelangelo, but I'm, you know, I'm just, but you might be one day. I'm just saying, but you know, I'm just saying, you know, you look out and like, what is there a lot of, what can I, what is, you know, I, one thing that has always appealed to me about language art, writing novels, poetry is the utter democracy of it. There are so many writers who have affirmed the sanctuary of the imagination, whether it's people like Jupiter Hammond or Phyllis Wheatley who were writing while enslaved, um, or Nazim Hikmet who spent most of his life incarcerated, or Anna Akhmadova who had to draft her poems, memorize them, and then burn them because, you know, the Stalinists were not big fans of what she was writing. And so um, just the utter democracy of writing, you know, no one can take away from you your imagination. Like no one can take away from you your memory. Uh, you don't need a kiln or you don't need like ballet slippers or, you know what I'm saying? Like mm -hmm. you just need, you just need your mind. So that appeals to me. What 
language has going against it is that our language, the language in which we're speaking right now, is the most murderous weapon ever invented. It's the most murderous <laughs> technology mankind has ever come up with, right? I mean, it has been used in service of indigenous genocide and chattel slavery and the building and deployment of nuclear weapons and carrying us to the precipice of irreversible ecological collapse if we haven't already passed that precipice, right? And that is the language of my art, or that is the medium of my art. That is the medium of my art. That is also the medium that I use to tell my nieces that I love them. That is also the medium that I use every night when I FaceTime with my spouse, right? And we're talking. And so it's strange to have this technology with such history and such a shadow over it. The Trinidadian Canadian poet M. Norbessa Phillip uses the word decontaminate. She says language artists need to decontaminate their language in order to use it. And I, I can't improve upon that. Um, I think a lot about how to decontaminate the language as I use it. And I think that one way to decontaminate language is to show its insufficiency, is to highlight the ways in which it is not made. It is not anticipating certain realities or certain lived experiences. Um, you know, if I'm trying to write about God or love or fear or justice or rage, the language is always going to be insufficient as a representational technology. What I write on the page is never going to be equivalent to the love that I feel when I look at my nieces. What I write on the page is never going to be the exact equivalent of the rage that I feel when I think about Iran Air Flight 655, right? And so I have to, in some way, demonstrate that fracture, that cleft, the, that there is a synapse between what is saying and what is being pointed towards. I think that's the artistry. We got into a little bit of that in the limitations of language. We also got a little way into the weeds with cliches and how when people kind of, especially if they run up against huge emotions that they feel like they cannot describe, they often fall into a cliche. Like, I think one of the ones we said was like, you know, I love you to the moon and back or whatever. And whatever the heck that means, you know. Um, but what do, why do you think some people like facing that limitation kind of just go to what they've heard before? It's a good question. <laughs> I mean, again, the representational capacity of language is almost always insufficient for, I mean, it's what you were talking about. Like if I am trying to help you draw a tree and it's like a specific tree that I saw earlier today, I could describe it to you for an hour. I could describe it endlessly in the most actuarial detail. I could say it's an ash tree. Um, it's surrounded by gray grass. Its first branch comes out on the left side and curves up at a 35 degree angle. Um, and it's roughly, you know, the branch is roughly an inch and a half in radius and the, you know, and, uh, I could do all of this, but I could also show you a picture on my phone of the tree which one of those would help you draw the tree better, right? Obviously the phone, right? There are certain things that language just isn't good at. Language just isn't good at giving you an exact replica of an experience. Um, it can only give you, it, it's like, <clears throat> language is like the flower thrown on the ghost. It's not, here is a picture of the ghost. It's like, here's all the shape around it. That's so true, but at the same point, the language would help you describe what it felt like to be standing near the tree where the picture would not tell us necessarily the gravity of being by that tree. Sure. Well, so, so you could say that the language is inward looking. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. and the photography is outward. But I mean, obviously we could both point to examples of photographers who are extraordinarily good at inward facing and, and also writers who are extraordinarily good at painting a picture, you know, um, but just fundamentally there are things that certain technologies are better at and worse. Also a photograph comes into the eye all at once. You know, I mean, certainly you can move your eye around and you can find, you know, to borrow some of Barth's terminology, you could like find the punctum, right? But if you walk into a gallery, if you're a sighted person, if you have vision, you're going to take the entirety of that photo into your eye at a glance, right? Whereas it's impossible to do that with language beyond a few words. You know, if I hand you a novel, it's going to take you a while to take that text into yourself. And so there's a temporal element, which and anything that involves time involves the body differently, right? If you're reading a novel, that means you've done a lot of things you know, over the cor- with your body over the course of reading it. Whereas with a photograph, I mean, you're probably, you, you look at it, whether it's on your phone or, you know, in a gallery or whatever, um, you look at it, maybe you walk a little bit closer to it, you walk a little bit further away, but the involvement of your body is very different, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that that's interesting too, right? The way that you have to construct language so that in the novel form, especially you have to construct language so that if someone's reading it and then they have to go pick up their son from ballet or whatever, and then they have to come home and cook dinner and then they can come back into the novel. Like you have to take into account that their body is going to be elsewhere and it won't just be like persistently engaged with the text for the duration of the experience of engaging with the text. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. So, I mean, for you now, since you defined yourself as a writer, as a high school student and you've been a poet this is the first novel. Is your experience like in writing all this, my experience somewhat in writing is that in the writing, it can actually forge the memories, like a, a memory of something. Um, like, let's say you were writing a poem or something, or, or even if some of your own personal experiences are in this story, the act in how you decide to put it down can kind of shape the memory of how you think about that thing that actually happened. I wasn't sure if you meant forge like metallurgically or forge like as in a counterfeit. Uh, and, you know what I mean? And I and I was interested in both definitions. I mean, it could be both, I suppose, because you can re- also rewrite what happened if and it will become what is true. Yeah, I think that a sort of forensic beholdenness to the factual archive of events is just so limiting for me personally, uh, especially as an addict and a drunk, I just don't remember things very well. Like I still, even new memories that I form, it feels like there's just a lot of holes in my brain, you know, where those are supposed to go. And, uh, it's just that technology doesn't work as well as it might in a civilian's mind. Right. So yeah, I don't, I don't, I I mean, you know, I don't want to speak empirically, but I don't anticipate ever doing anything closer to memoir than what I've done in this novel. Do you think you could actually describe what a poem is to somebody who didn't know? Um, my favorite definition of a poem is the poet Mary Leader said, a poem is a thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think any narrower definition inevitably winds up excluding things that some people have called poems. And I'm not particularly interested in that kind of restriction you know i think that if someone calls something a poem i'm happy to read it as a poem and it might not be a very good poem it might not be something that that you know my my life isn't diminished in any way by someone else calling something a poem that i don't really care about you know Mm -hmm. um i might offer that you know my definition might be something more like a poem 
is a thing made of language. I think language seems to be an important element, but then again, I, I don't know. I'm sure I could come up with exceptions. The poet William Carlos Williams said, a poem is a small or large machine made of words. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's pretty good. Why was that your entry point as a writer, do you think? Because I had a high school English teacher who read Yusuf Komunyaka's Facing It to us, and I thought it was the greatest thing I'd ever heard. And I took home the book. He let me take home that book and some other poetry books and some zines and stuff like that, poetry zines. And I just had a shock of utter clarity, you know, like a angel's clarion call that I was a poet, right? It was just like almost offensive that people had wasted my time teaching me geometry or, you know, physics or social studies, you know, because I was so clearly a poet and why didn't people tell me this was an option? And during a time in my life when the things that a regular person feel are reasons to remain on earth, you know, like an exciting future, family or country or art or, you know, none of these things felt very interesting to me. None of them felt like reasons to stay. And, you know, as is well chronicled, I was a pretty sad and self-destructive youth and <laughs> youth. Um, <laughs> I just I sound like I'm 70, I, but, um, but, uh, but I remember reading that book and then I went to the library and saw that there was this 811.5 section filled with other books like it. And I was like, Oh, like this is a thing that living people do, right? Like this is a thing that I can just like, if this is an option, like if this is a way to be a person in the world, like again, like I didn't want to be a meteorologist or a doctor or a whatever. Like there was nothing that really appealed to me in the world, but this, if this was a thing that I could be like, that was worth, sticking around for yeah i was right it was worth sticking around for. yeah i hope it's you awesome. yeah, i hope you stick around i mean, yeah, th I mean this is your first book my goodness the heights you're gonna go to <laughs> i mean it's just it's it's it rules i love i love it i mean i you know i'm an addict in recovery for 10 and a half years so i'm i've lost my privilege to most of my favorite highs but i can get very high off having written i can get you know like if i write 2,000 words in the morning and then get a parking ticket and get into a fight with my spouse and get a nasty email or something like that. Like I'm still walking around. Like you can't tell me anything because I wrote that morning and it's just, you know, that's, that's narcotic, right? Like the sense of, I don't care what is happening in my reality because I feel so good because of this other thing, you know, like that's narcotic. Right. And yeah, I just, I get, I get so much higher off having written than anything else that's left to me. You, it's interesting you were talking about a, a teacher who brings you this poem. We just did a show. I keep referring old shows that we just did, but um, we just did a show that was about how you discover a passion and what happens if you never find it. Like, is it possible for a person to go? And of course, we kind of decided it was. Is it possible that a person could have a real passion that they never come across mm -hmm. in, in the course of their life? Yeah. It's an impossible question to answer. Yeah. Is there anything else in your life, you know, that was even close to that discovery for you? No, and the fact that I had that moment of utter clarity so early in my life is one of the bedrock gratitudes of my being alive. I mean, that is one of the bedrock occasions for gratitude along with my sobriety is that I got that clarity so early when it eludes so many for lifetimes, right? Like it there are so many people who don't even have the clarity of what they want to do, let alone the ability to act on it. Yeah, I mean, again, that I had that clarity so long allowed me to organize my life in such a way over the next 20 or so years so that 
you know, and I, and, you know, I assume that being a poet would mean that I lived in a tuberculine garret on top of a coal mine or something, you know, and, <laughs> but, but I, I was happy to do that. Right. Like I, I, if that's what meant that I would get to spend a life doing this, then I would gladly live that life. There are a lot of ways in which this current iteration of my living, where I just get to be a writer who's, you know, I'm married to my best friend and my favorite poet who is, you know, an extraordinary writer from whom I learn every day. And, um, I teach at the university of Iowa where I get to work with really, really passionate, eager students who all want to talk about writing. And I get to do this thing where I publish books and I go around and I talk to people like you who are like interesting about, you know, and ask provocative questions about writing, you know, and, and it's just, it, it's that part of my life and the micro is fairly indistinguishable from what I would describe as heaven in the macro. I would like every sentient being to be free from suffering and all the guns and bombs in the world to be melted down and, you know, but in the micro in the tiny, tiny selfish micro, this is the top of the mountain. Yeah. Well, let's end with the, let's end with the concept of love. There are a lot of surprises in this book and I'm not going to spoil any of them. Um, but I think that love is another theme of this book. Mm-hmm. At one point, your character describes his whole life as being a steady procession of passionately loving what other people merely liked, which is a great description. And then I read some article. I don't usually read articles when I'm going to do an interview with somebody, but I did come across your editor, Jordan Pavlin's description of you, which was that you are a heart of gold walking around in the world. I mean, there is a similar characteristic. What is it? It's like curiosity, passion in like both of those descriptions. And I think sometimes in, when a person thinks about somebody who's an addict, that's almost as counter. Like we're kind of meant to think that, like in a lot of ways that the news reports it, et cetera, that, you know, what they're doing is numbing themselves. It's not about passion, curiosity, and, and all that stuff. But in your mind, does any of this fit together? Yeah, I love that connection. I mean, I, you know, the fundamental crisis of consciousness for me is the untranslatability of my effusions, right? Like if I could show you my spouse, the way that I see them, you would be making hard eyes every time you saw them too. Right. But I feel this way about art, right? Like every time I love an album, every time I love a book, it becomes utterly like ethically incumbent upon me to share it because I feel such joy at it that it would feel like withholding. It would feel selfish you know like like if i give you like a snickers bar and you just held it in your mouth for two days right you get cavities right it's gross it's weird that's how it feels to me and i have this totally evangelical proselytory impulse every time i love art which is excruciating for my spouse because like i'll be like you gotta watch this movie and then i'll just hawkishly watch them as they watch the movie (laughs) which is not fun for them and like inhibits any sort of organic experience you know and and I, i really work on it but it's like it's like pathological. Like, I don't know what that is in me, but it's like so important to me how much a thing has moved me that it feels, again, utterly incumbent to share that with people. And to draw maybe a too facile connection with narcotics, I mean, I really love drug. You know, I, I, you know, maybe I, I mean, I was using and drinking because of X, Y, and Z psycho-spiritual crises, but that's not how it manifests consciously, right? I just like the way they make me feel consciously. I'm like, you know what would feel better than nothing right now is feeling really good in my brain, you know? And honestly, it still feels kind of rational to me to think that way. Like if I can drink or if I can, you know, 
do heroin or whatever, you know, um, if I can buy a vial or whatever and, and I have the money for it, then what it doesn't feeling good. If I have the option of just feeling good right now, doesn't it make sense to, you know, like, and in the same, my spouse is a civilian, you know, like they, they <laughs> have never had a problem with drugs or alcohol, but like when, you know, they haven't had any since meeting me because they just never cared about, like, they're the sort of person who can get a gin and tonic at a party. And then three hours later, it's like two thirds full still, you know, mm-hmm. which just blow a, it blows my mind and B it kind of pisses me off. Uh, cause it's like, you have the privilege, like you're allowed to do this and you're not even using it. Whereas like, I don't even get that privilege. It's like, you're wasting it. And I would be having, I would be doing great with that. You know what I mean? I'd really go to town on that open bar. You know what I mean? Like that sort of thing. Um, which is how I know that, you know, I probably am doing the right thing by, by being in a program of recovery. So since you are a person to to bursting with recommendations, (laughs) besides the fact that everybody should run out and read your new book, Martyr, bright yellow cover, (laughs) Kaveh Akbar, it's a great cover, actually. I really love it. I'm allowed to say that because I didn't have anything to do with it. I know, and, and it's so luck of the draw to a certain degree. Like, well, I, I guess I, I mean, I did veto a great many covers before <laughs> it. And then I had asked for Linda Huang, who did this cover um, from the beginning, and they finally assented and asked Linda Huang. And this was her very first attempt. It's very, very good. I so, so I will say that the rec- my recommendation is that you should run out and get this book right now. But is there anything that you really need? Like, what's the Snickers bar you want people to, to read, watch, hear right now? So can I recommend two books? Sure. Uh, so I wrote this book in tandem with the writer Tommy Orange, who wrote a book called There, There, that I think published in 2018. Probably many of your readers are familiar with it. It's a pretty well-known book. If you haven't read it, you should thank me later. Um, it's one of, it, it is honestly one of the great works of art of the 21st century, just in any genre, great works of American art. I can't speak to the field of global art as well. But yeah, I, I mean, uh, There, There is, you know, if any books published in the last 20 years are still being taught widely in a hundred. I would put my money on there, there. So we wrote these books and we, uh, we trade Friday pages. We trade pages every Friday with each other. And I wrote martyr and he wrote a book called wandering stars, which comes out in a month. And it is so good in every direction. It is sort of a sequel slash prequel to there, there slash also kind of it's totally own thing. It's extraordinary. It is so smart. It is so, fun and well paced like you just get so into the characters that you don't even notice all of the teleological ontological pyrotechnics that tommy is up to um it's it's sort of this magic trick um so i really love that and then there's a book by the writer marie helene bertino um called beauty land which came out maybe a month ago or something like this and it is the story of a young girl who is born a young sort of Italian American in Philadelphia who is born and quickly realizes that she's a Martian and sends, um, or maybe not Martian, but she's an alien and she sends missives back to her home planet via fax machine about earth. Like she's just sent to earth to sort of report on the doings. Um, but she's also just like a regular, (laughs) uh, we're sitting in an office, as I mentioned, and it's, printing the printer is printing <laughs> yeah, but sorry. please go on well so so she you know so the whole book just is so delicious and strange and utterly defamiliarizes america and contemporary living both in ways that are 
hilarious and granular. Like I think that she says Chardonnay smells like grass and urine, and you know, and like uh, and yeah, I, I mean they're very very funny smart lines, but uh, like that will make you laugh out loud. But it's also very political and it's also very existential and it's a beautiful book about death in hilarious ways which i always admire you know it's easy to write a very dour self-serious self-important book about death um it's much harder to write a book about death that feels like living which is sometimes sad sometimes funny sometimes ridiculous sometimes absurd sometimes heavy sometimes light you know um and and it's one of those it's one of the it's one of that sort of like higher order books that's great. So tell us the titles one more time, just so everyone writes down. Sure. sure. Tommy Orange's book is called Wandering Stars, and Marie Helene Bertino's book is called Beauty Land, and that's Marie Helene, M-A-R-I-E, um, H-E-L-E-N-E, and Bertino is B-E-R-T-I-N-O. Um, that book is called Beauty Land, and Tommy Orange is spelled the way it sounds, and the book is called Wandering Stars. And of course, we have to have you go get Martyr. Do you want to spell your name for them? K-A-V-E-H-A-K-B-A-R. I've been studying for that question my whole life. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, this was so much fun. Thank you for reading the book so well. It's not a small gift. It's, it means that we've spent a lot of time together, and I'm grateful for that. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. It was one of my four books of January. Oh, amazing. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> August company, I'm at. Yeah, very much so. All right, well, we'll leave it there. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. And one more note. People who support this show over on patreon.com slash the Bittersweet Life podcast get two candid bonus episodes every single month. That's often where we discuss things that we would not necessarily bring up on the main show. We've had some very fiery discussions over there as late, and this coming week for Valentine's Day is no exception. We not only talk about our first loves, we also talk about when a romantic gesture goes off the rails. So if you're planning something special for Valentine's Day, you might want to hear a few cautionary tales. You can support the show for as little as $5 a month. Just visit patreon.com slash thebittersweetlifepodcast or find links to support us in the show notes. Talk to you soon. Bye. <laughs>